The message is entitled, The Gospel of Grace. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, that it is instructive for us. It is a light for us. We don't have to figure out the path of our feet. Just follow you. And we see you in your word. Lord, give us a growing appetite for your word that we might spend time looking into the word and becoming like you. And Lord, I pray for those who are here that don't know you, they're not part of your family because they've never trusted you as their own personal Savior, Lord, that you would use the gospel, Lord, to use the word and the worship of your people as salt in their life, that they might thirst for the water of the word, and that you would draw them to yourself. And Lord, instruct us, Lord, that we might be built up prepared for the ministries that you've given to each one of us because you've saved us on purpose and you have gifted us for a purpose. Now, Lord, I pray that I might be spirit-filled this morning, that this message might be from you and just speak what you want heard today, and that each one of us might be spirit-filled listeners, Lord. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. I spent time wrestling this week because... The right Reverend Dr. Howe reminded me as we spend time with this this week in seminary hermeneutics of the most important hermeneutical principle after you get done figuring out what the word is saying is, and that is, so what? That's an important principle if you didn't know that. So what? There are many teachers that just want an information dump on you today, but there's also application. This is a long introduction. I know some of you are like, whoa, one verse? Last week, you know, one verse? Really? Pastor, well, it's only three chapters, so we do a verse a week and we'll get through it. We're going to go a little faster than that. But it's so important to understand our position in Christ that we are servants of the Most High God, that we are slaves. He hasn't given us suggestions. He's given us commandments, the commandments of Christ. But he's also given us a new heart, a new desire, a new want to, to follow him. And the obedience in that brings us the joy of life. So I want to start in the introduction, verses 9 through 16, again. Because we need to understand why he gave him this instruction. He said, Titus, verse 9, hold fast the faithful word which is in accordance with the teaching so that You and those that you train to be leaders, those that you appoint to be leaders, will be able to both exhort in sound doctrine and refute those who contradict it. We need to be built up in the word of God. And he said, I put you in a culture that is not friendly to the word of God. Kind of like us. Today, people call good evil and they call evil good. Especially in the university community. You go to your classes, it's rare. There are some there, but it's rare to find someone who would say the Bible is the word of God and we should be submissive to it. It's rare, and so they're going to teach what they believe. This is the culture that Titus was supposed to minister in and prepare leaders to serve in. Rebellious men. Empty talkers, verse 10. Deceivers, especially those of the circumcision. The religious people, the Jewish people, were some of the biggest problems. 
They must be silenced because they are upsetting whole families, teaching things they should not teach for the sake of sordid gain. They have their own message for themselves to profit. As far as the Cretans, one of themselves, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons, and I want you to minister the gospel in that culture. Read it again. Liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. And this testimony is true. For this reason, reprove them severely. Now, we live in a Christian culture that says, hey, listen, let's make it palatable, and after all, let's be nice. And I'm often reminded of the words of Pastor Hutchison, nice is not a fruit of the Spirit. Kindness is, love is, but nice isn't. Nice is just so that I can feel better about myself. And the majority of the Christian culture in America would like us to have some event where you could invite everybody, and everybody would have a really good time, and it'd be great, and nobody would be offended, and they'd all get saved. The problem is that's not the gospel. And he said, I want you to rebuke them severely. Well, if you preach the word, people won't come. Well, that's not our goal. The goal is not to see how many people we can get. Now, do we want to see many, many come to Christ? That's right, we do. We want people to really come to Christ. The only way that's going to happen is if we really preach the truth and the gospel. And don't try to coat it with sugar. Don't try to change it. It's dynamite. Just light it. Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, Romans 1.16, for it, not me. We preach not ourselves. It is the power of God unto salvation. So the best way, the best chance for people to come to Christ is share with them what he said was powerful seed, the gospel. What is the gospel? Jesus died on the cross for sin. Not a popular message. We just like say, well, that's, you know, too negative. No, no. He died on the cross on purpose for your sin, and not for yours only, but for the sins of the whole world. There had to be a payment so we would have a way to come to Christ. So he said, you rebuke, rebuke those, those teachers severely. You know what will happen? Some of them might realize their own lie, their own wickedness, their own sin, and come to Christ. But even if they don't, there'll be a very strong line of demarcation that that's not the truth, here's the truth. It goes on. Not paying attention to Jewish myths and commandments of men who turn away from the truth. People just make it up. There are so many people that want to be the authority in your life. Politicians, just buy what they're saying. The news media, just believe them because they're on television. Believe what you see on the internet because after all, it's on the internet. And Wikipedia said so, right? Myths. Empty fables. Like almost every time, unless you're coming to a funeral here, you'll hear, well, Grandpa's just looking down from heaven. No, he's not. Because if Grandpa's in heaven, he's so overwhelmed with seeing Jesus, he doesn't have time to be crying about you, right? That's a myth. 
You know, we hear the story about the guy who had a blind dad, but he's a football player, and he was a lazy football player until the day, the week after his dad died, and he said, Coach, put me in, because my dad was blind, and for the first time, he's going to be watching me. Uh Uh-uh. That's a myth. But we would rather buy myths and stories, the world would, than the truth. And he said, no, no, we we don't need to... You know, tell a lie in order to get a good response. Just tell a story so you can get a good emotional response. We just speak the truth. He said, so you have to mark out those that are saying that this is true and that is true. And he said, verse 15, to the pure, all things are pure. But to those who are defiled, unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their mind and their conscience are defiled. And everything they touch, they defile. They like to bring a question, and they question everything, and they defile everything, because that's who they are. And the last verse, verse 16, they profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny him, being detestable, disobedient, worthless for any good deed. Now, we go there first so we can get an idea. Why did he have such a long introduction? Because Titus knew what he was dealing with. He'd been there with the Apostle Paul, was going around establishing these churches. Paul left him there, we see in verse 5, to finish the work of establishing those churches. So he starts with the idea that, listen, we're just servants. We don't make up the message. We don't change it. We don't try to make it easier to understand. We just preach Christ. And he puts them, he gives them the gospel, reminds them of a God they serve, this almighty God. And Paul starts with verse 1. And he said, A bondservant of God, a slave of God, and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the faith of those chosen of God. And he starts with, listen, this message that you're to bring that will bring about godliness true godliness in people's lives it comes from the king our king is a supernatural all-knowing all-powerful king and Paul says I was chosen by him on purpose to bring this message I was chosen to be a slave of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ so I bring an authoritative message He was chosen of God. That's personal election by the king versus those self-appointed teachers who want to intimidate you by saying, well, look what everybody believes this. You heard that? I've heard that many times. People say, well, you know, I see the Bible's teaching a six-day creation, but what about everybody else? I mean, the whole world. Well, you want the truth? Or you just want to be popular on the broad road until you go over the brink into hell. We want the truth, right? We say we're seeking for truth. Doesn't matter what everybody else believes, this is the truth. Those self appointed, self serving, ungodly, defiling, destructive liars. How do you know if they're lying? Study the truth. You don't have to study the lie to see if it has any merit. Just know the truth, and the truth will set you free from their lies. He was chosen on purpose by God. Last week after the service, a young woman came up and said, 
uh, do you believe in predestination? It's the Bible. It's part of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So where do you get that? Ephesians 1, 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself according to the the kind intention of his will to the praise and glory of grace which he freely bestows on all of us in the beloved. Romans 8.29 For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. Why did God tell us that? He told us why he told us. So that we might understand. What can we say to these things? So that you might know. If God before you Who can be against you? Who's the one that brings an accusation? It's Christ that died. He said, well, that sounds a lot like, you know, Calvinism. Well, Calvin wasn't original with these doctrines. These are Bible doctrines. Bible doctrines. Read this week a book by Charles Spurgeon, just a short book. You should read it. Amazing little book. In defense of Calvinism. And he said, if you, he said, I would rather be known as a Christian than a Calvinist, and I would rather be known as a Biblicist Christian than a Calvinist, because Calvin did some things like burn people to stake that we say, ah, no, that's wrong, right? He baptized infants, that's not biblical. But he took these doctrines of grace, of salvation, and they're Bible doctrines, so he believed them, but Charles Spurgeon said this in that little book. He said, if you were to boil it all down, these doctrines of grace, these doctrines of salvation, soteriology, the doctrine of Calvin, what would you say in in one statement? Salvation is of the Lord. Salvation is of God. The Bible clearly teaches. We sing a song. If God had not worked in our life, if God had not chosen us, we'd still be a rebel today. If God had not, by his grace, opened your eyes and made you understand, you know, the second verse of amazing grace, amazing grace, how sweet the sound, the saved letters like me. Second verse says, it was grace that taught my heart to fear. What? The coming judgment. And then grace my fears relieve when I recognize that Jesus took my place and I could receive him as Savior. How precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed. 1 Peter 1, beginning in verse 1. We are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood. May grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure. Not only because we read Romans 8, 29, right? For we know that God causes all things to work together for good. It is God. God gets all the glory of salvation. We don't get any glory for choosing him. I believe it's John 6, 45. It says everybody has an opportunity. Everybody hears those that listen come to him. It's kind of like God leads you to the cliff of destruction. You're a blind person. 
There it is. There's your death. There's your, your destination. Without hope, he pulls the blindfold off. He opens your eyes and you go, whoa, I'm not going there. That's the work of God. Secondly, verse 2, the gospel is a message of hope, not fear. All religion outside of biblical Christianity ministers fear. You better do this or else. Do this or else. Even some so-called Christians, uh, they will teach, well, do all you can, do the best you can, and then God will make up the difference. How do you know what you've done is your best? And have you ever done your very best at anything? That's not a message of hope. That's a message of hope so, but it's a message of fear. And verse 2 says, in the hope, that is a confident assurance. We have a hope the sun's going to come up tomorrow. Not a lot of doubt about that because we read in the scripture that for at least the next thousand, seven years, the sun's going to come up. Till God brings all this to a conclusion in their seven years of tribulation that he might reach out and bring his, na- his, his own first chosen people, the Jews, to himself as a nation, and that all those that he's chosen will come to him, and then a thousand years of him reigning on earth. So we know that it's going to last so tomorrow, based on the scripture, the sun's going to come up again. I don't know if you'll be a part of that or not. I can't guarantee that. But we know that the sun's coming up tomorrow. There's a promise that as long as time continues, there will be seasons. Summer, fall, winter, and spring. There's going to be seasons. He promised that. In the rainbow, every time you, after a rainstorm, every time you see that rainbow, that's a promise. And so the hope of eternal life for believers is not hope, so it's that confident, the confident assurance. And where do you get that confident assurance? He puts it in your heart. You just don't have to stay around a bunch of people that all believe the same thing all the time so they remind you. You have become partaker of the life of Christ, and all of a sudden, he changes your want to, he changes your focus, and he gives you hope, hope that no one else can take away. We went through Hebrews and we looked at Hebrews 6.19. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, a hope both steadfast and sure, and one which enters the veil. Why? Because God promised. He promised long ago this salvation, this hope of eternal life. He promised it clear back when man fell. Clear back in Genesis 3.15. He said one day there's going to be a seed that comes of the woman. And he's going to crush the head of Satan. Satan will bruise his heel, but Jesus will crush the head of Satan. One of the scenes that, to me, is so powerful in Mel Gibson's The Passion of the Christ is that Jesus is in the garden. He's praying. And he's such under such stress looking at the, the coming separation from him, of the, him from the Father because of the sin of the world being placed on him at that time. It's, he sweat, as it were, Great drops of blood. But he stands when he's done with prayer. He sees the soldier. He hears the soldiers coming to get him. And he stands and there's a serpent there. And he crushes the serpent. Poetic. But based on the word of God. Our hope, our eternal life is secure. And it's secured by the God of glory. The one who promised is also able to bring it to pass. Eternal life. But you don't get eternal life when you die. You get eternal life 
the moment you receive Jesus Christ as your Savior. And that's why you have that hope that no one can take away. Peter says that inheritance that is never spoiled and it's always yours eternally from the moment you receive Jesus Christ as your Savior. You have that confidence. Paul, when he writes the Ephesians, calls it Erebon, the engagement ring, the promise of God. And nobody has to talk you into it. You read it in Scripture, but it's there in your soul and in your life because God has given you the life of Christ, his DNA. Thirdly, verse 3. The gospel is the message of God's providence. And say, well, what is providence? In strong systematic theology, he says this, providence is that continuous agency of God by which he makes all the events of the physical and moral universe fulfill the original design with which he created it. Since Christ is the only revealer of God and he is the medium of every divine activity, providence is to be regarded as the work of Christ. 1 Corinthians 8, 6, one Lord Jesus Christ through whom are all things. John 5, 17, my father worketh even until now and I work. Verse three says this message at the proper time was manifested. Now it's talking first of all about Christ and when he came. God had a plan from eternity past because he knew man would fail. That Adam and Eve would not be confirmed in their righteousness, that they would fail. But he would have a plan of redemption. And it says in in the scripture that Jesus Christ came at the fullness of time, Galatians 4, 4. When the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law. And so we see that God had a plan, and Jesus came at the, exactly the right time. If you get a chance to go to Israel with uh, the seminary, Dr. Bookman will teach you that God in his providence created this, na- this, this geography for the people of Israel to live in. And he put them right so that those that come from the Fertile Crescent go down to Egypt. There's a highway that goes right there along Israel. And so all the world could come by and hear the message of the Creator because they'd forgotten. But then where the people lived themselves was very hard to travel over, and so they would be protected in their lifestyle, just the geography in God's providence. But Israel failed to be the messenger. But God knew that. And Paul says there, In verse 3, at the proper time, Christ was manifested, even his word and the proclamation with which I was entrusted, according to the commandment of God our Savior. Even your, the timing of your salvation was God's perfect plan. So if you ever have doubt, well, hmm, what if I had missed that meeting? What if I told that person, I'm not going to go to church with you, or I'd not gone to that hotel and pulled out that Gideon Bible and read it, or, or I had refused to listen to my friend who was sharing. What, what about that? No, no. God knew because he created you exactly what it was going to take to open your eyes to his gospel. What a plan. And faithful is he that calls you, he will also bring it to pass. And the Bible says, if you delight in him, Psalm 37 Verse 6, 
You don't have to struggle about being righteous. You delight in God. You spend time with him. You joy in him. He's going to bring your righteousness about like the sun coming up in the morning. You don't have to strive. You don't have to labor in fear because you have a message of hope. And he says here, listen, even the timing. He knew. God, see, God is always proficient in those he sets his affection upon. Personal election. You say, well, okay, well then, I guess he elected everybody else to hell. Nope. Well, pastor, if this is true, then logically, this must be true. Logically, it might seem that way to you. But biblically, well, how do you bring those things together? You know, the whosoever will may come. Does the Bible teach that? Yes, it does. Whoever will receive Christ as their Savior will have eternal life. They'll become a son of God. But you said personal election. Amen. Do you understand those things? Absolutely not. See, they come together in the mind of God. And I'm not God. And as soon as you begin with your little peony mind to think you got God figured out, you're wrong. You're wrong. Whosoever will may come and chosen before the foundation of the world. Both are true. What does that do for my ministry? Does it make me feel like, oh, well, whoever's going to get saved is going to get saved. So, hmm, you know, I don't have to do anything. That would be a wicked slave, would it not? Who has this precious message but says, eh, master's going to do. He's a hard master. He's going to do whatever he's going to do anyway. No, no, no. I've said this before. It'd be like when we had our children and Christy would tell me, well, we're going to have another one, probably another boy. And I could have responded, oh, well, I guess that's going to happen. Whether I'm there or not, it's going to happen. Think that would encourage the, wife, the, the, the heart of my wife? No. Why? Because I'm so in love with her. And when we are in love with our God, and he shows us what we're doing, we just try to keep up. And that gives me such freedom in preaching the gospel because it's not about me. I don't have to change it. I don't have to talk anybody into it. You say, well, how do you know who's elect? Preach the gospel. You see, Jesus said in John 10, my sheep hear my voice. Now, the first time they hear his voice in the gospel, we've heard testimony. I don't like that because it's contrary to our flesh. But then you had to come back. How many people, my friend witnessed to him, I say, don't ever bring that up again. Don't pray for me. But they did anyway. And then later you called him one day and you said, I just want to tell you, I received Christ my Savior and all the joy, right? So you can't mess it up as long as you share it clearly and simply as you can. Just share it. Jesus said, it's like scattering seed, Matthew. Just, just get it out there. God will prepare the hearts. God brings those decisions. God draws people to himself but he gives us the, the amazing joy of being there and seeing what he's doing. And what does that do for you in your, in your walk? It tells me over and over, I'm telling you, this God is real, and he is alive, and he is working, because there's no explanation. When we see these people that are running as hard as they can after the world, and they don't want to hear it, and one day you hear the gospel, and they go, what's that? And they lift their heads from feeding on the world, and Jesus says, follow me, and they begin. And God gives them a new heart and a new focus 
and a new trajectory so that they just serve God all their life. You can't explain that. You can't disciple people into it. You can only share it and watch what God's going to do and then disciple them in the word of God after God has brought them to himself. His plan is amazing. When my dad first went as a 29-year-old pastor to Wheatland, Wyoming, there was a senior in high school there, Lynn Howe. And dad told my mom, well, he didn't use these words, but he said, I guess about time, it's too late. We should have got here earlier because there's this sharp young man, athlete, president of the student body. Uh, We probably got here too late. See, that was my dad's wrong, you know, fear. Because the first youth activity, God had a plan for Lynn Howe to hear the message. Now, he'd been hearing it in church all of his life, but then God opened his ears and he saved him, and he totally changed his life. Very little to do with my dad or my, uh, my dad's attitude, but everything to do with the gospel that he shared. Jonah, the worst missionary that ever lived. Read it. He didn't even like, he hated the people he was bringing the message to. He did everything he could from bringing the message, but he finally, all right, God's going to destroy you all. He went through the town, did what he was supposed to do, and God brought repentance to the whole wicked city of Nineveh. We preach not ourselves. And then lastly, verse 4. What Paul is saying to Titus is, listen Titus, don't be intimidated. You're just like me. God chose you on purpose. He gifted you for his purposes. You're his servant. You can have the strength and the confidence to go and do exactly what I was doing. He said, to Titus, my true child in a common faith. And we read about Timothy. Timothy was also somebody that Paul had probably led to the Lord. But Timothy was weak and he was sometimes physically and and he was uh, timid. Didn't say that about Titus. So remember, Titus, you're my true child in the faith. Years ago, we had the, during the time of the quickly chosen elders, um, we had some fellows come in that knew more than God did, and somehow they got into leadership. My fault. And their whole deal was, well, we we've been Christians longer, and uh, we see what great work is going on here. So. What we were doing, where we came from, there was nothing happening. So we're here to change it to be like where we came from. Wonderful. And when they came in, the thing they said about people that I'd seen come to Christ and had poured my life into them, well, they're just like talking to you. Well, does that surprise you? Should we be surprised that Titus wanted to follow Paul as Paul was following Christ? No. Should be surprised that as he discipled him, even the hard scriptures, he probably came down pretty close to the side where Paul came down because that's who discipled him. And he had a lot of the same opinions because Paul's method, 1 Thessalonians 2.7, he said, I didn't just share the gospel with you, Thessalonians, but I poured my life into you. That's what Paul did when he discipled somebody. Poured his life into them. You can't do that with just a pulpit ministry. 
Paul took leadership training and leadership uh, education and discipleship very personally. Some years ago, I had a friend in the ministry, and he said, I'm so glad the denomination takes care of leadership training because I'm so busy. And I told him, I said, listen, that's supposed to be your main job. Training leaders. You did Titus, listen, you're just like me. You're my two child in the common faith. What is that? You have the same God that chose you, and you have the same body of faith. You have the same message to share, the powerful message, the gospel of the almighty God. And then he says, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. We see that tagged on there, and sometimes as believers, oh, yeah, grace and peace, grace and peace. You know, remember, grace is the power and the desire to do the will of God. It's one thing to know it, right? We're really good as Christians about knowing what the right thing to do, but sometimes we don't because we're not filling ourselves with the worship of God and time in his word, feeding on his truth. And so what happens is we begin to be weak in our desire. We need to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And what is that? That's being filled up with the word. That's delighting in the Lord. So that when he shows us what our responsibility, what our assignment is, we have the desire to do it. And then he says, I'll work through you. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, he talks about us being ambassadors, I believe about verse 20. He says, as though Christ were begging through you, he wants to use you. Grace is the power and the desire to do the will of God. And what is peace? That is the supernatural confidence that what you're doing is exactly what God wants you to do. It's not absence of the storm. It's not absence. Paul said, pray for me because an effectual door is open for me and there is much opposition. Sometimes we know we're doing the right thing just by the opposition that's coming. Paul said, I want to have such amazing confidence that this is the Lord. He said, Titus, that's for you. He said, Titus, I'm convinced that God has called you to do this, which I'm about to set on you, and that is to develop leaders, to complete the work that God has given you to do. You have the same message. He's not an apostle. He doesn't have the authority Paul did in writing the doctrine, but he has the authority as commissioned by Paul to train those leaders, to appoint those leaders, and complete the work right there in Crete among these islanders who were just wicked and lazy and opinionated on their own. And to see them come from darkness into glorious light. We serve the same almighty sovereign God. We have the same message, the same grace, the same peace, and the confidence that God keeps his promise, that he is absolutely in control. Jonathan Edwards called the sovereignty of God the safest doctrine in all of Scripture. Because about the time you think God doesn't know, he's forgotten you, you read the Psalms, and David thought that too. Oh, Lord, where are you? So far from my prayer. But he begins to rehearse back to the Lord God's faithfulness, and then pretty soon he remembers, oh, that's right. God didn't go anywhere. Romans 8, 28. And we know that God causes all things 
to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. God's not forgotten. He, didn't, he doesn't need to adjust his message for this modern age. He knew the millennials were going to be here. He knew the attitudes of men because nothing really much, not much has changed in the world since Adam chose sin over God. Not much has changed. And the message of redemption has not changed. It is valid. The question is, have you received it? Have you received it? Don't say, well, I don't know if I'm elect or not. That's not your business. That's all God's business. That's just security for the saint. Do you want the gospel? Then it's available for you. You want Christ? Do you want redemption? Do you want salvation? Do you want freedom from fear? Jesus said, come unto me all that are labor and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. The last invitation of the Bible, Revelation 22, is anyone that wills, let him come and drink of the water of life freely. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the gospel that saves us that takes away the fear, that brings us into relationship with you, that we can follow you and be under your authority, the almighty God of creation who loved us and gave himself for us, Lord. Lord, strengthen us with your word that we might be confident to just share the gospel. We can take ourselves out of it because we don't preach ourselves, just share that Jesus Christ came and he died for sinners and not for our sin only but for the sins of the whole world and Lord if there are any here they're looking at their lives as why I think that I've sinned too much Lord give them the realization that the power of the blood of Christ is powerful enough to save every sinner that ever lived to forgive any sin that's ever been committed that's how powerful our God is That's how powerful the sacrifice of Jesus is. And Lord, draw them to yourself and we'll give you all the glory in Jesus' name.